Hi, you've clicked on the Reach Australia podcast. At Reach Australia, we want to see thousands of healthy, evangelistic, multiplying churches all over our country. I'm Pete Hughes, and I want to say welcome. I'm glad you decided to come. Today, we're going to be hearing again from Rory Shiner, the lead pastor of Providence Church in Western Australia, as he continues to take us through Colossians and how does church fit into the book of Colossians. Enjoy. Uh, great to be with you again today to keep digging into uh, what the book of Colossians has to teach us about uh, community and about God's purposes in the church. Um, it's been really exciting for me to hear about other people's experience of the REACH uh, program. Our church is also enrolled in the REACH program, and it's been a huge thing for us. I think it's been the probably the most significant intervention uh, in our church and in uh, my leadership. It's hard to read your writing, Scott. Is that what you say? But uh, Something like no. Um, in all seriousness, uh, we are enrolled in that program and, uh, and it has been a huge help for us. Um, I think probably lots of us have had that experience where uh, you come through uh, various forms of training in Bible college and MTS and so on, and you come out and like 60, 70, 80% of your job are things that you weren't trained for. And a lot of the stuff you come up against is stuff that you really just hit the blue screen. You think, what, what happens now? And uh, it's been huge uh, for us. We're seeing fruit, so we're very thankful um, for that ministry. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, we pray now as we come uh, to your word that you would um, delight us uh, in the goodness and glory of Jesus and delight us in the goodness of glory of what you're doing in and through the church. Uh, for his sake we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we started yesterday, we had that picture of, uh, I gave you, the, imagine you go to an Airbnb and you go to a holiday house, the whole place is clean, except that someone's forgotten to uh, clean up the jigsaw puzzle. So on a table somewhere, there's a jigsaw puzzle and the pieces are all over the place and some of them are upside down and uh, it's just a big mess and the lid has been lost. And so uh, nothing is together and without the lid, you can't really know what it's supposed to be. That's, a, that's the picture we had, and that's supposed to be a, a picture of our world, of our universe, that it's a world uh, that through sin and rebellion, angelic and human, the whole thing got messed up. Uh, all, all the pieces are disintegrated. You look at it and we've lost our connection with the picture of how things are supposed to be. And yet, it's part of how the, the metaphor works, you look at it and you do think, I bet it is supposed to go together. I bet it is supposed to make sense. I bet this, I can't work out what it is, but it does seem to have some sort of coherence. And what we're learning in Colossians is that in the revelation of God, it turns out that instinct is true, that the whole thing is hold, supposed to hold together, that it does have a coherence, and that coherence, that centre point, is the sun. And the message of Colossians is that God's work, what God is doing, God's task in the universe is to bring that jigsaw puzzle, to bring all things together through the Son, through Christ. That's what God is doing in the world, bringing the whole thing together under Christ. And our big question today as we kind of take this journey through our little journey in ecclesiology in Colossians is to ask the question, if that's the big plan of God, where does the church fit into that? 
What is the role assigned to the church? What is the particular task of the church in the great work of God of reconciling all things in heaven and on earth in Christ? That's what I want to ask today. I think there's three questions that will help us to, to get there. I want to ask firstly, number one, what is the church? Um, secondly, what does the church do? And thirdly, what are we supposed to do in church? Uh, what is the church? What, what is it for? What does it do? And what are we supposed to do in it? And that third question will straddle from today and then uh, be our main occupation tomorrow. So there are the three questions. If you're a note taker, that might help you uh, to follow along. Firstly, what is the church? What, what are we talking about when we talk about this uh, thing? Colossians is not a long book, so the good news is that we're in about five or six minutes, we will be world experts on the usage of the word church in Colossians. It won't take that long. I think we've got a slide where you can see uh, every single usage of the word in the book. And so I just want to give you, you know, half a minute or so to just to kind of read through it. Um, glide over it, puzzle it, have a think. There, there it is. There's every use of the word church. Um, just let your mind go. What do you, what do you see? What do you notice? What do you understand is going on there? While, while you're ingesting it, while you're taking that all in, let me just say a few things that might help to frame what you're saying, but feel free to keep reading while I'm talking. Uh, two things, it almost goes without saying, but it's always a dangerous thing to think something goes without saying. It uh, doesn't mean building. So uh, church in, in the Bible never means a building, never refers to a building. Um, it's not a problem to me that it does now refer to a building. Language is allowed to do that. Words change their meanings and reference. No one's in charge of language. You can't, there's no government that assigns which language you, what you can and can't use words for. It's completely fine. So I'm not going to be like linguistic Taliban on you and uh, take you down if you call a building a church. Um, but I just want to say that's not an option here. So, so whatever sense you're making of the word church, it, it can't mean that here. The other thing that might help you is you kind of uh, take that in, uh, worth knowing. Um, the Greek word is ecclesia, and that normally refers to a gathering or an assembly. So that might be another thing to plug in. I think that's a concept that's not hard to understand. I think one of the places that we still use that word uh, is in schools. So you think about a school, local school, that school is a community, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff. You have classrooms and tutorials and you have you know, rooms of 30 and rooms of 12 and you have a staff room, you have administration, you have a whole lot of stuff. It's a coherent thing to talk about the, the school community, that, that makes sense. But one of the things every school that I've ever heard of or been a part of does is has an assembly. So that community for some reason, uh, wants to be together, wants to come together and to do whatever you do in the assembly, often like announcements and uh, might sing the national anthem and whatever goes on there. But that thing, that when the, when the community assembles, the Bible word for that would be church. You, you'd say that the, the school just churched. So that, a few things that will help us uh, think it through. But let's, let's come back and kind of... Uh, See if we make sense? Let's work, work backwards from the end to the beginning. So fourth usage in the book says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it's read in the church, though so there's our word, see that it's read in the church of the Laodiceans 
and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So again, what do you got there? You've got uh, uh, two communities and, uh, and one of them is a, a group of Laodiceans that's referred to as a church, a, a community, a gathering of the Laodiceans. Next one, Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So that's interesting because what you've got is a group that, uh, as far as we can work out from archaeology and uh, you know, sizes of houses, it, it, minimum I'd say about 10 people, maximum maybe 30 to 40 people, depending on the kind of uh, house that you're in. Uh, but that group of people who, who meet at Nympha's house, that, that is also a, a church. Now the thing about those two instances of the word is that they're empirical. They're, they're the kind of thing that you could take a photograph of. You, you could take a photograph of the church at Nympha's place. You could take a photograph of the church of the later scenes. If you knew what time they were meeting and where they were meeting, you could be there. It's a, it's a thing in the world. It's, it's an actual entity. There is a church there. Two more. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And then again, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, I don't know if you're tracking with me, but that sounds a bit different. So you've got the church at Nympha's house that you can take a photograph of, the church of the later sins, they're swapping letters with the church in Colossians, that's the thing you can, you can know the time and place and you can be part of it. And then here in chapter 1, we're talking about a thing of which Christ is the head and we are the body and that thing, the head and the body together, Christ and the church. And then again, a reference to the body, which is the church. And that seems like bigger or, or something, something other than or different from or it's got a bigger range than the thing that we just described at Nympha's house and in Laodicea. So what does that mean? Now, it could mean, you know, all Christians everywhere. Uh, could mean that, could just be a way of referring, like a kind of collective noun for Christians. That's another word for all Christians everywhere, that they're called uh, the, the church. And full disclosure, as far as I can see, most people think that's what it means. Um, so if you want to do um, theology democratically, um, we've got our answer. Uh, it just refers to all Christians everywhere. And again, I want to say it could, like it might mean that. And again, I want to say the way language works means that you're allowed to take a word that used to mean one thing and make it mean another thing. Uh, that's entirely possible. Um, so let's keep that on the table as an option. It, it, it could be. Linguistically, as far as I can understand, it would be like referring to a school as an assembly, which is, you know, kind of an odd thing, but you could maybe do that. That's the nature of language. So that could be the case. Church, body of Christ, all Christians everywhere. It could mean that, but I don't think it does. I don't think that's how Paul's using 
the word there. I want to um, put forward to you, and completely unoriginal to me, but I want to put forward to you that when he's using the word church in Colossians chapter 1, he's not uh, in some indiscriminate way just searching for the word that means all Christians everywhere. I think he still has in there the idea of an assembly, the idea of a, of a gathering, but it's the gathering of Christians presently around Christ in heaven spiritually. Now, you hear that and you think, this is kind of like, how did, who, who's helped by that? Like, what does that mean? What is it, how we gathered around Christ spiritually? What, what does that even look like? But I, th- I think you can make sense of it. I think I can justify the claim from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Notice the language that Paul uses. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Question, where are you? On the map, you are here. Where, where is that? Now, see, I think, I think what I'm saying. At one level, you're at EV on the central uh, coast and you're, you're here. But it is another possible and like non-exclusionary, both things can be true at the same time, to say that you are currently raised with Christ. But you are seated and we are all seated around Christ. We're at the right hand of the Father because our life, your life, my life is hidden with Christ in God. By the way, I think it's a really good thing to remember. The, the, the most important thing about you the truest, best, deepest thing about you is invisible. That, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Kept safe with God at the right hand of the Father, hidden with him. I, I think that's what it means. I think he's saying that because we've been risen with Christ and you've been risen with Christ, then we're there together. You and I are both risen together with Christ uh, in God. We are hidden with Christ. We are around Christ. The significance being that when we gather in Christ's name, when we come together as church, we're not part of the church. We're not gathered as a wing of the church, but we're gathered together when we gather together as an expression on earth of our risenness with Christ together in heaven now. And, And I think... If that's true, that really matters. Now, we'll think tomorrow about the relationship of the churches. Because I think that's a huge question. If God is about unity, about bringing all things together in Christ, and if the church is the kind of uh, the site of where God's building that unity, then a really good question is, what kind of unity should we have across the churches? So if you're down the road and you're up the road and we're here and we're there, and if we've got different labels or different denominations and so on, uh, is that a problem? Should we fix that problem if it is a problem? Would we express unity better? What is the relationship that we're supposed to have? We're going to look at that tomorrow as we think about the relationships between the churches. But what I want to say here is I don't think the Bible says that the churches are the body of Christ in a distributed sense, that each one of us as a church is a part of it. So I don't think what the Bible is saying is that you know, you've got the Anglicans, and like they're really good at liturgy. And then you've got the, you know, the Pentecostals and they're just really like enthusiastic and, and warm and we can learn a lot from them about you know, uh, how to do a, a Sunday gathering. And the Presbyterians just know how to have a... 
They just know how to have a good time. That... <laughs> there is a relationship between the churches. We'll think about that uh, tomorrow. But the, the body image doesn't work by saying that we're kind of, we're like Lego. There's this one thing and we're each apart and we're incomplete without each other. And so we need each other. And so you need to kind of, you know, you say to the Anglicans, like, okay, you're that part and like love the liturgy, but would it, would it kill you to smile? And like, and we just kind of, the churches, I don't think in the Bible are like this dismembered body that will one day bring glory to God when they're pulled pull together. Rather, and I think this picture works, we are more like, if you think of the droplets of water on a leaf that catch the morning sun, each droplet captures all of the sun. Each of those droplets, in the way that they collect the light and reflect it back to us, they don't collect a part of the sun. And so you need, so all of them together, finally you see the full picture. Each of them receives all of the sun in the reflection that they give. And the Bible, extraordinary though it may sound, I think talks about the churches in that way. That when we gather together, we are, a, in a sense, a complete expression of, of the church that is gathered around Christ in heaven. Uh, we are the body of Christ, the, the, and each church is the body of Christ. And God gives the church by his spirit all that we need for life and godliness, that we, the, the, the gifts are distributed within us, that God has been kind and generous in pouring out his gifts on the church, and so that when we come together as church, uh, I know for a fact that I need you. Before I've even really worked out why, I, I know that, there is something in you that I need and there's something in me that you need because it's together in the church that we are the body of Christ and expression, a complete expression, but an expression of the body to which we're all gathered. Question number one, what's the church? Question number two, what is the role assigned to it? What's God doing in the church? Here's my uh, statement. I'll put it out there and I'll try to back it up. Uh, at least in Colossians, I think the church is God proclaiming to the universe including the evil powers, his victory over evil and his plan to bring all things together through a reconciled new humanity. Now, that's not catchy. Um, that doesn't work as a kind of a mission statement, but uh, uh, I'm dealing with something that I think is kind of big. So I say it again, in the church, God is proclaiming to the universe, including the evil powers, his victory over evil and his plan to bring all things together in Christ through a reconciled new humanity. Let me see if I can back that up. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, uh, here's, I think, where, uh, where Paul gives that picture for us. He says, I rejoice in what's suffering, suffered for you. Fill up in my flesh what's lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them... Is the bit, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, you were dissing on my little summary, but look at the material I'm working with. This is, this is complicated stuff. 
Let's, let's break it out. I think we can make sense of it. So he, he, Paul is saying that he suffers for the sake of the church, which is Christ's body. And particularly with Paul, he's been given a commission. Uh, he's, been, he's been given a particular assignment, which is related to the church. And it's an assignment related to a thing that is a mystery, that is a secret that was kept hidden. So uh, God is mysterious, uh, but mystery doesn't mean mysterious. So God is mysterious at, at one level, but that doesn't what this word means. Mysterious here means secret. It means a thing that was secret and now is disclosed. And what is that secret? What is the thing that Paul carries in his ministry, in his body, and that is kind of manifest in the, in the church? What is the thing, if I can put the question this way, what is the thing that when you read the Old Testament, in hindsight is obvious, kind of hidden in plain sight, but before Jesus, you don't quite know how to put it all together. What is, what is that thing? Because, you know, you do read the Old Testament. Well, people read the Old Testament before Christ, like, a, uh, like Peter says, where you kind of search through it and you think, okay, so there's, he's going to keep his promises and he's going to do this and there's someone suffering and there's someone who's a king and there's some Israel seems to go down and come up and then they come up and, and like there's kind of a resurrection of Israel and he's kind of what? There's this whole thing and it's obvious that God is going to act in the universe. That he's going to bring his kingdom. But it's like, how? How is he going to do that? And, and the answer is, to use Augustine's image, um, uh, through the cross, God sets this kind of mousetrap. That, that through the cross... Uh, God is more cunning than the evil powers of the world, more cunning than sin and death and Satan. He sends the Son of God, uh, the glorious radiance of the being of God into the world. Creation's firstborn comes into the world as one of us. And the powers and principalities, uh, the forces of darkness, see the Son of God come into the world in the person of Jesus and haters got to hate. And so they see the Son of God and they plot together to kill the Son of God. And in their attempt to destroy the Son of God, they try to make a public spectacle out of him and he makes a public spectacle out of them. He triumphs over them because they get trumped in the cross. Um, I kind of like to imagine that... uh, on the day that the evil forces conspired together to kill uh, the Son of God, there was maybe someone who was uh, left back at HQ, one of the more junior demons, and uh, came back and they said, uh, they said oh, um, uh, you know, how'd it go? How, how was the assignment? And can you imagine the look on their face uh, when they say, look, I, I still can't kind of work out what happened. Uh, but when we went to kill the Son of God, we may have accidentally kick-started the salvation of the world. <laughs> Which is the major case of, dude, you had one job. Like, <laughs> you see, what happens in the cross is, is the evil forces get double bluffed. God outmaneuvers, outsmarts them through the, outsmarts the powers and principalities through the death of Jesus. God makes a public spectacle over them. And here's the bit He expresses that through Jew and Gentile coming together in the church. Verse 26 28. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, God has now disclosed to the saints. Got a theory on what that means. To them, God has chosen to make known, now hear it, among the Gentiles, 
the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. One of the things we underestimate uh, as we gather together is how outrageous it is that you bunch of pagan worshipping, pork eating, you know, druid, virgin sacrificing pagans, ancestrally, I'm not saying that's your situation at the moment, uh, are now coming together to call on the name of the Messiah of Israel and talk to his father like he's your father. What the heck? That's wild. That, that is amazing. And that is the secret that was hidden. The secret is Christ in you, not meaning Christ in your heart. The secret in the Old Testament is not that Christ was going to be in our hearts. Right? That's not the secret. The secret is that Christ was going to be in you, that is amongst you, that is amongst the Gentiles. The, the, the thing that you think, oh, I think there's a clue there, clue there, clue there, then boom. God is bringing together Jew and Gentile in reconciliation in the church through the cross. So every time we gather, we declare the victory of Christ over the powers and principalities because of who we are. The, the Gentiles now brought together under Messiah Jesus. Remember that uh, jigsaw puzzle? So you think about that, this kind of distributed jigsaw puzzle, everything's upside down, the wrong way, around, back to the front and so on. Uh, the forces of power and principality, the powers and principalities, uh, they like it that way. When it's all chaotic, when it's all over the place, powers and principalities, uh, Satan and his minions, they look at that and think that works for us. Uh, because, because while it's all kind of broken apart, they want chaos. Chaos is their kind of modus operandi. They don't, they don't want order. They want, they want the whole thing to be messed up because when the whole thing's messed up, it looks like God hasn't got a kingdom. It, it looks like the whole thing is kind of scattered. Not God, God is not in control. But when all things are reconciled in Christ, when they're put together under him, Satan is defeated. Because at that point, the, the, the kingdom has been completely manifested and made clear and through judgment and salvation, through the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of those who have trusted in Jesus, uh, God puts everything together again and makes everything right and it shows over for the powers of darkness at the end of time. But here's the thing about the church. In order to get there, um, God does the hardest thing first. You see, in order to get there, the reconciliation of all things God does the hardest thing straight off the bat, which is reconciling his image bearers, now enemies through our rebellion, to him and to each other through the death of Jesus. That's the hardest thing God will ever do. Compared to that, everything else is going to be like a, a cinch. You know, bringing all the planets back into alignment, whatever it looks like for the planets to be uh, working properly again and the animals singing God's praise and stuff like that. That's the easy bit. God's already done the hard bit by reconciling us to him by the forgiveness of our sins and the death of Jesus and us to each other. And so in the middle of that picture of the kind of the, uh, the, the, the broken and messed up jigsaw puzzle, the picture that God has brought back together, the hardest thing first is the picture of the church. Now unified, now standing together. 
People have different, have different ways of putting uh, that together. Some people have said that the unity of the church is achieved by the church replacing Israel. There's one solution to say God had to go with Israel. Israel had a chance. She blew it. And God has replaced Israel with the church. And that's in the middle. I don't think that's right. Uh, the second option, which is probably more popular, is to say that the unity of the church is, is achieved by the church becoming Israel. So there's like old Israel, new Israel, and we're the new Israel and we accrue to ourselves all the kind of privileges of Israel. I think that's more likely than the first one, but I still don't think that's right. I think what he's saying is more subtle and more powerful. What he's saying is that Israel and the nations, through the death of Jesus, have been pulled together into one new humanity, one new man, the last Adam. God's purpose was always to have image-bearing creatures that bore his image to the world. God's argument for the existence of God in the humans that bear his image. And what God is doing in Jesus and through the church is bringing Jew and Gentile together under Christ to be the new man, the new humanity who perfectly and fully bears his image. And I think that's what makes sense to me of the, the otherwise kind of strange image of the head and the body. Christ is the head and where the body. What's that? That's Adam. That's humanity together at last, this composite picture that together is the image bearer. Because you remember Adam and Eve, the two become one flesh. Remember Ephesians 5, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body over which he is the saviour. Remember Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, neither male and female, for you are literally uh, one man, pulled together as one man in Christ Jesus. That's what God has done in the church. Slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, we've been brought together in one unity in the church as an expression of God's final victory, begun but not yet completed, hard bit done, easy bit still to go, declared in the church. So as we finish, uh, what do we do in church? Uh, we want to get practical and we certainly will get very practical tomorrow. I think there's two questions that are still outstanding in our studies together. Uh, one of the questions is how do the churches relate if their relationship is not, you know, arm, foot, tail, de- I don't think we have tails, but uh, if, the, if the relationship is, is not that, what is the relationship with the churches? What do we owe one to another? What kind of unity should we express? And the second question is, if it's a fact of the church that it is a unity, that's what it's saying, not, not saying that the church could become a unity if it tried harder. It's saying it is already a unity because of what Jesus has done then our question is, how do do we live in light of that unity? How do we fully express that? How how do we be that? How do we be to each other what we already are? But I do want to say as we finish, there is a conclusion I want to draw from what we've seen this morning, and it's this. Whatever else we've got to say about the church, when we come together as church, the stakes are very high. When we come together as church, we are doing something very significant in the purposes of God for his universe. 
I want to say that because I reckon lots of you, uh, like me, tend to underplay the spiritual warfare that we're involved in. That's my guess. Some of you probably, uh, maybe if you're from a Pentecostal background, and if you are, hugs, like, great that you're here. And uh, uh, I think maybe you'll agree with me because my Pentecostal friends agree that there is a bit of a thing in Pentecostalism uh, where you can overclaim, where you're like, oh, the urn's not working, it's devil, and the, uh, uh, it's the wrong slide, it's a satanic attack, and so on. And so there is a thing where you overclaim spiritual warfare, and you think, dude, maybe it's just like a mistake. And, uh, and maybe we, in response to that, underplay things. And so you go to church and the kids do seem to fight every Sunday. Am I making that up? And every sermon is like a, it's like a really difficult birth. And, <laughs> maybe has some analogies with difficult births. Um, other people in the room. That, that things seem to go wrong and be harder. And sometimes with church, you feel like you're kind of swimming in a swimming pool full of wet sand as you're kind of swimming and swimming and wonder uh, whether you'll ever get there. And when we come together as church and when we build the kinds of community that flow from church, the powers of darkness have a vested interest in that not happening. Because that, that's God's way of rubbing salt in the wound. That's, what, that's God's way of continually uh, humiliating the, the, the powers and principalities. So we tend to say, we've got a logistical problem. Pentecostals might say, we've got enemies. And I think at that level, uh, they're not wrong. We build church in the midst of our enemies. We build the churches that we build and the communities that, we, that flow from them in a live war zone. And we do what we do against powers that would wish that we, could, that we would not continue. And so sometimes we say, oh, gee, you know, I've had that conversation a number of times this week. You say, gee, you know, these churches, gee, they're a bit tricky, aren't they? It's a bit, bit hard to kind of pull these things together. Do you think? Like what we're doing is declaring God's victory in a dark, dark world. We're going to stand and sing about the victory of Christ. We're going to sing in particular as the band comes up uh, a song that may be new to some of you. We are one in the Father's love. It's a song that's going to help us to do the ministry of speaking the truth to one another in love, of declaring the praises of God uh, to each other in the words of this song. So let's uh, gather together and when these guys are ready, we're going to stand and uh, sing this together. Well, that was Rory's second talk. Please stick around. You'll be able to hear his third talk soon. If you've got any questions or anything that you'd like to uh, know more about with Reach Australia, please make sure that you contact us at reachaustralia.com.au. I'm Pete Hughes. Chat soon. <laughs>